Well, hello, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today I have special guest Kieran Malik on the line. And this guy is a freaking wizard when it comes to macro manipulation, experimentation. I learned a ton. We have a very similar protocol in how we go about nutritional manipulations. And we kind of dive into that throughout the course of this podcast. But he's just, he, he knows his stuff and he knows how to experiment to figure out what his stuff is like so many people do these willy-nilly experiments but they don't really have any underlying foundational base in order to make an informed decision kieran is not that he knows what he's doing and he knows why he's doing it so we talk about how different macronutrient ratios make you feel we talk about protein thresholds we talk about all the things that that really make a difference when it comes to figuring out how to adjust your nutrition to reach a compositional and a health goal so I learned a ton. I have no doubt that you will as well. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and listen to the podcast with Kieran Malik. And Kieran, we're live. How are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Robert? I'm doing wonderfully well. So I want to kind of dive into a lot of different things here. You reached out, I think, via email at first and we started talking kind of going down the rabbit hole about you get into keto kind of some of the different experiments you've done and we seem to have a pretty similar approach and protocol to macro manipulation so before we dive into those experiments i kind of want to just dive into some of your backstory man like what got you into keto in the first place yeah so initially i was doing it mainly as a way to control body composition Mm -hmm. so i found that with carbohydrates in the picture i was always stopping my lean gain phases short because I thought I was gaining fast, uh, gaining weight faster than I should be mm-hmm. or because I look so different in the mirror day to day. So it was kind of messing with my head. Uh, so obviously cutting down and rebounding up has some detrimental effects on performance. And as you may know, usually the, the aesthetic as well. So I was someone who was um, preaching the benefits of having a lean physique and your nutrition dialed in without actually experiencing them myself. So in the past, I was overly restrictive. I couldn't really separate my body image from my self-image. Mm-hmm. And I was floating along on an artificial self-confidence while in retrospect, probably dealing with some disordered eating patterns. Um, but I stumbled into keto because it really helped me simplify things. Uh, I was able to cut out the noise, focus on whatever goal I had from a more sustainable mental state while simultaneously actually dialing in my performance and finally achieving the look I wanted. Let's talk about it. let's let's rewind, man. Like, what what do you think? Because I I had struggled with just all kinds of eating disorders and just disordered imagery of my own body all throughout high school. Like, I didn't even take a long sleeve shirt off until I was you know several years graduated because I didn't want anybody to see me because I had this weird self image that didn't didn't correlate with my actual image. So, what do you think made you like think that way of yourself in the first place? I mean, I was, I was a little overweight growing up. I was always kind of the athletic kid. I, I always played soccer, always played sports. Spent eight hours a day outside running around, but I just couldn't quite get a handle on, on looking like I did all those activities, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an older brother, and he can eat, uh, but he's also six inches taller than me, so I would actually eat the same amount of him, as him, and obviously uh, metabolism wasn't quite there, so... You know, I guess growing up, I always had a little bit extra on me, and that kind of stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how that, like, some people doesn't seem to phase, and other people just, like, digs in deep and rears its ugly head and is just constantly on top of mind. 
Yeah, no, for sure. It's like, especially when you're looking back at pictures of yourself, it's, it's one of the hardest things to do. Right. And take and separate, you know, how you actually look versus how you think you look. So that was a struggle for years. And all like during that, I mean, how old are you now? I'm 22. 22. So like what, what is mainstream media now? Like for me, when I was going through high school, for instance, and I was really struggling with a lot of these eating disorders and just disordered self-image, I feel like I was, they, like, there wasn't Instagram or anything back then, you know? So there was, like, the magazines, like, Flex Magazine and stuff. So I'd see those and, like, compare myself to that. And there was bodybuilding.com, but that was probably the only online forum that I was aware of where, like, you can actually start digging in. There was no Instagram. There was no, you know, social media platforms that were really gaining momentum. I guess Facebook had launched by then was starting to gain some popularity, but I didn't really get the the full blown effect that I feel like social media has on people nowadays. Do you think that has been a positive thing or a negative thing overall as far as like body image goes? You know, I think you hit the nail on the head, um, especially Instagram being being the main thing nowadays. Um, actually, when I was coming up through high school, that wasn't too big of a concern for me. Um, mm-hmm. I was more focused on performance then and was playing high level soccer. So luckily that took up most of my attention. But I would definitely say now, yeah, it's it's everyone being 24-7 shredded, really, just looking cut all the time. And that's kind of placing that unrealistic expectation for those interested in fitness or even those just interested in sport. So, yeah, I do think that's one of the main issues is probably Instagram, actually, at this point. And it's funny because, like, within the keto space, there's obviously people posting about the foods they eat and how like eating good quality foods yields a good quality physique. But I feel like mainstream fitness industry hype is is all about showing how lean you are while also eating what is quote unquote the crappiest food around. Like that is just this weird dichotomy that exists. I don't understand why that's so popular and gains so much momentum, but it's like people would rather post them with like, like eight pack abs and a whole bunch of birthday cake than actual good food for whatever reason. Yeah, it's like you're trying to prove to everyone what you can get away with when, you know, really you're doing this. Well, I I know you do this for the same reason I do. It's for longevity. It's it's for a healthier life, right? It's not to prove that you know you can you can eat a cake and, and still be ripped. So no, you're I'm I'm with you there. I don't really understand it. So you're 22 now. How old were you when you started diving into keto? I was just turning 19. And how did you find out about it initially? Yeah, so um, I was following, uh, as we go back to, to social media, um, I was following a couple of keto proponents, um, Dominic D'Agostino. Uh, I had heard some anecdotes from Ben Greenfield, mm-hmm. um, as well as I dived into some of the research myself for uh, Volick and Finney specifically. So I was, uh, I was intrigued by what I saw, so I kind of jumped in, having a background actually in, um, in doing longer-term fasts. Um, so let me, let me start there actually. So in 2016, I began fasting. Um, that was around 16 hours a day, uh, then 18 hours and then OMAD all the while doing a mixed macro diet. Mm -hmm. Um, so due to the fact that I would have a dinner as my one meal, I was kind of inadvertently carb backloading. So I then started to think critically about why I was fasting so long each day in the first place. And I kind of learned of the ketogenic diet through that as it's used as a fasting mimetic. So you can imagine at that point, I'd had a fair degree of metabolic flexibility. Mm-hmm. 
So I kind of came into it with my eyes wide open. You know, as I said before, looking at uh, the neuroprotective effects, uh, the benefits for blood sugar balance, insulin sensitivity, and things surrounding inflammation management and endurance. So I was pretty intrigued by what I saw. So and you actually, were getting uh, the you were seeing the interest in fasting arise from what you had known about the benefits that fasting provides long before keto was ever part of the conversation. Yeah, so um, I would say that fasting was my gateway into keto. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and actually, um, six months later, after I started, I guess I had a quick adaptation, probably from that background in fasting. I um, I placed first in my age group for my local marathon while in a ketogenic state. Nice. Uh, competed in several obstacle races and saw no performance detriments in my lifts and my physique. So I was I was pretty hooked from that point on. So what was this like? A, at that point, you were doing full-blown keto and then you went to the marathon you maintained keto you didn't do like a car backload or anything like that for that no i just i didn't want to mess with things everything was going so well throughout my training i just saw no need to inject any unnecessary variables that could you know throw me off on race day so yeah fully ketogenic that is a concept that bears repeating because i feel like so many people it's it's the weirdest thing man like they'll be doing something everything will be working beautifully and then they'll just assume i guess probably from age-old wisdom that they're supposed to do x y or z which their body has like no relevant experience doing and they'll throw this unforeseen variable into the mix and everything you know goes downhill spirals out of control i mean you see it all the time in bodybuilding people will be looking amazing they'll follow a certain protocol and then peak week comes around and they they do some crazy unknown variable you know manipulation and everything just goes to hell in a handbag. And I feel like people do that a lot with regards to keto, low-carb fasting, and this thought that, hey, for this given sport, you got to have carbs, or for this event, you know, you really need to increase your glycogen stores. And, like, it just is not the case. Yeah, you know, I think it comes from the whole grass is always greener kind of perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just as an example, I was uh, training for the Spartan race uh, this coming October, which unfortunately was canceled due to COVID. But um, in my training, I did a couple speed tests. Um, so I would do a 5K as fast as I could around every other week. Um, and to be honest, I was playing around with carbs throughout this training bout. Mm-hmm. First time I ran the 5K, I ran at about a 345 per kilometer pace. Um, which puts me close to the 18-minute mark. Um, the second time I did it, I did it fully ketogenic and was able to bring it all the way down to 17 minutes and 15 seconds, so about a 3.30 pace. Although, and then I should note this, it did feel a lot harder. So my perceived exertion was was a lot higher without carbs, but my performance seemed uh, seemed to be superior. So that's just uh, something interesting I thought I'd throw out there. What do you think could have led to that increased perceived exertion? You know, if I'm being honest with myself, it's probably the fact that I was in a slight caloric deficit at the time too. Mm, Gotcha. Um, And maybe I wasn't eating enough protein, so my glycogen stores might have been a little bit low. But it also could be the fact that I'd been training so long in a ketogenic state that when I did reintroduce carbs, I was was throwing something off. Yeah, it's... it's, uh... So with with the Spartan race, like that's a lot of obstacles, but it, it, there's different distances, right? Like some, there's like three different links, like there's a sprint, a beast, and a, I forget the other one. The ultra. The ultra, yeah. And what what are the different distances? Yeah, so I'm I'm not clear on the middle one, but I know the sprint is five and the ultra is fifty. 
So I was, or sorry, the beast is five, but I was uh, signed up for the ultra. So I was doing very long bouts, um, runs usually over an hour and then coming back home and uh, doing sandbag workouts, very glycolytic work that I would have expected to be able to, or to have to use carbs for. But I guess at that state of adaption, it was, uh, I was able to get through it. So pretty happy with that. Because that, I mean, I would imagine that's kind of like a, a whole different dimension of type of activity. I mean, you're getting the the endurance sport factor in there with also these very, very intense bouts of glycolytic demanding exercise, whether that's like the obstacle or, or whatever that may be. Um, but I feel like that would be a pretty good testing bed to see how these different diets can actually perform for like, not that we're all living in day to day and doing Spartan races, but I feel like that's a good, you know, quote unquote, functional movement test. Yeah, and, and I think that's part of the limitations in the research, right? You have these long endurance sessions that they're testing, but they don't necessarily do a lot of mixed activity, if that makes sense. So you don't see them testing it on, let's say, CrossFitters or or bodybuilders. And it would be interesting to see what, what arises out of that from a well-adapted ketogenic athlete. Yeah, man, that, that's my biggest gripe with so many of the test studies out there. I mean, you get all the flexible dieters, you know, citing different studies in which carbs the carbohydrate group outperforms the keto group, but almost, I mean, without a, without fail, the the group that's quote-unquote keto has only been on a keto diet for like four weeks. So they're like maybe just starting to get adapted. So it's just not really a level playing field. Yeah, no, and I, I can actually remember back when I was starting to adapt myself. Totally different. <laughs> Absolutely totally different than, than it is now. And comparing the two is like comparing two different worlds. So I definitely do think there needs to be a higher standard when uh, when we're considering these studies totally totally so let's kind of dive into some of the different experiments you've done with regard to the macro manipulation because i feel like you know it's all very individualized but generally speaking people kind of associate me with a higher fat protocol relative to, to protein and you know the high protein versus low protein that that's getting all kinds of hype right now in the keto space so what what have you done what have you experimented with and kind of what have you noticed from these different manipulations you've made yeah, so before I actually get get into you know these different manipulations, I can speak from my experience working with some of my clients. Um, it differs just a little bit from uh, from your experience, uh, or maybe not. Um, I found that with my clients that were a little bit more overweight, they actually benefited from a higher protein approach. Mm-hmm. Um, the deleterious effects that the leaner individuals had with higher protein, they just didn't seem to experience. Uh, whether that was you know excess water retention, differences in digestion. But personally, um, you're right. No, I have, uh, I, have, I have experienced similar effects to you in terms of I do favor a higher fat approach. Um, so, right, in terms of my experiment, it was indeed, as you mentioned, uh, one of macro manipulation, and I was trying to optimize for several outcomes. Uh, some of them were subjective and some of them were more objective. So I looked at uh, strength mood, sleep, libido, body composition, cognition, and digestion. Mm-hmm. Um, and feel free to interrupt me anytime here because I'm going to get in deep if that's all right. Yeah, man, like take, take it and run with it. Yeah, so I, I started my experiments in August 2019. Um, throughout this experiment, I was holding carbohydrates to 15 grams or less whilst manipulating my protein and fat macros. So always- Total carbs. Yeah, total carbs. So gotcha. always trying to stay within that uh, the ketogenic realm without a doubt. Mm-hmm. 
So I started uh, the month of August in a slight deficit of about 100 to 200 calories, uh, tracking water intake, uh, sodium, magnesium, potassium, protein, fat, and interestingly, the ratio of monounsaturated fat to saturated fat. Mm -hmm. uh, hours fasted, energy levels, mood, libido, sleep, weight, measurements, strength, <laughs> water retention, cognition, and digestion. I know that was a lot. Um, but I just wanted to make sure I, I covered everything that would have been relevant. How do you keep all track of this stuff, man? Like you like sync it up with Heads Up Health or something? Oh no, I massive spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, so um, I ended up separating those into objective and subjective measures and keeping track over those for the next coming months. Essentially, my goal was to reverse out of the cut I had done for the summer, um, maximizing for the variables you know I just outlined. Mm-hmm. Um, I was starting out at about 1,600 calories with a dietary fat percentage of, on average, 65%. Um, just for some context, I'm not a big guy. I'm about 5'8 and 135 pounds. So and getting down to 1,600 was your was your lowest, right? So you had just done a cut, so that was where you were at the very end of it, right? Yes, that's right. What did you start at? I started at 2,300. Gotcha, gotcha. And over how long a period of time was the cut? The cut was from April to August. Gotcha. Okay. I'm, I'm following you. <laughs> so uh, holding everything else equal, I started to increase my fat intake from that 65% slowly until my ratio was close to about 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, from that, I didn't really experience any real negative side effects except perhaps some digestive distress, and I was starting to crave more volume in my meals. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just... Um, more or less a consequence of the fact that, you know, fat is more, uh, is more calorie dense and you're going to have less of it on your plate. So it might have just been a uh, messing with my perception. I, I could have been just as equally satiated, but I digress. Uh, I started increasing my protein systematically at that point uh, by about 10 grams a week. So very, very incrementally. Um, now, previously, I had gone as high as 275 grams of protein a day. Mm -hmm. And again, at 135, that's that's quite a bit. Um, so I had a good sense of what too much felt like. Um, you know, pulling that in with what I've seen with my clients, it kind of varies from person to person. But for me, it was lowered mood, higher water retention, slower digestion, poorer sleep. And this might go counter to what some of the people in the carnivore space are saying, but I was actually hitting plateaus in the gym instead of bursting through and and hitting PRs with increased protein. Yeah, it, so. it's it's interesting, man, because I definitely feel like there's a spectrum with regard to the protein. I mean, it depends on how deep your level of adaptation is, depends on how much lean mass you have, depends on a variety of factors, but I, I definitely can relate with you on that plateau, and not just to me, but my clients as well. I've, I've I read Ted Naiman's uh, PE diet book, and I mean, it's a really well-written book. It's got great graphics, and I tried experimenting on that with myself and with my clients, but, and I'm sure there are definitely people that have seen benefit from it, so this is not a blanket statement, but it seemed on average most of my clients would plateau following that protocol, whereas when I started upping the fat ratio, it would they would bust through that plateau. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, it's It's that initial progress, I think, that drives people to keep doing it, and Commensurate with your experience and anecdote, I've, I've seen the same thing. Um, there's probably that two to three week period on the onset where they do see weight loss quite readily, but it could also be that protein-rich foods are typically 
You, you broke up there for one second. What was that thing you said? Protein-rich foods are typically whole foods, and then what? Yeah, no, I was just saying that um, if they are then focusing on protein-rich uh, foods, they're typically whole foods, and it's a lot harder to eat massive quantities of whole foods. So I would guess that their um, their calorie intake for the day was probably a lot lower. Right, that makes sense. So speaking of calories, you mentioned that when you went from 65% of your calories from fat to 90%, did you say that that uh, calories were equated for that whole time, or did you did you decrease protein while simultaneously increasing fat, or how did you go about that? Yeah, so that was isocaloric. Um, so I stayed at sixteen hundred for as long as I could before slowly increasing my calories via the increase in protein. Gotcha. So you went from sixty five to ninety. So during that time of increasing fat, you were inherently decreasing protein to keep calories constant. And then once your fat ratio was so high at sixteen hundred calories that's when you started just incrementally bumping up 10 grams of protein a week? That's right, yeah. I was trying to establish, um, you know, I think you call it the, the protein threshold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess all of that is to say is that I have at times achieved great results on higher protein, but at the expense of a lot of other factors that I'm not willing to give up. Um, mm-hmm. Like I had, you know, brain fog, slow digestion, water retention. And I just felt, you know, pretty poor all day, but hey, I looked great, but uh, definitely not something I want to go back to. Um, and I do find a lot better benefits on a higher fat approach. Yeah, that's that's another interesting you know, point because there are so many instances of people getting absolutely shredded with high protein. So it's not, I'm not here to say that that's not possible by any means. I mean, you look at the vast majority of most competitive bodybuilders and they all pretty much follow a very high protein and low fat and depending on whether at their prep low carb protocol so most of their diets would qualify for ted Naiman's pe you know kind of ratio look but like like the whole reason i left that style of eating is because like you said you know i, I sacrificed a lot of cognitive enhancement i sacrificed sleep quality i sacrificed just how i felt overall my energy level i start to notice a little bit more inflammation in my joints when my protein is relatively or is high relative to fat and those, like even if you're shredded, it just kind of distracts from the quality of life that I wanted to live. Absolutely. I mean, I, I truly think that you can have both in terms of, you know, a, a solid aesthetic as well as, you know, optimizing for longevity and health. And in my opinion, a high protein approach isn't necessarily the way to go about it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So what 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 was the next uh, manipulation? So I'm following you now. You, you've basically increased protein by 10 grams a week what was your threshold like this is gonna be very individualized but what did you notice to be your threshold yeah so i found that for um, about a week and a half i didn't really want to move my macros past 73 percent fat so that seemed to be my threshold um i had monounsaturated fat making up 50 percent of that content uh mm-hmm. polyunsaturated fat making up about eight percent and saturated fat making up the remaining 42 percent so from what sources? Uh, so a mix of sources. I basically um, mixed uh, different like olive oils, avocado oils, beef suet, beef tallow, uh, bone marrow until I hit uh, that 5842 mm-hmm. because I was trying to mimic the ratios naturally occurring in a beef suet. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so um, that actually brings me down to another rabbit hole and I don't know if you want to if you want to talk about this but um, I'm becoming more and more intrigued by uh, Dr. Paul Saladino's linoleic acid uh, hypothesis. Hey, man, I like rabbit holes. Let's dive into it. 
<laughs> yeah, so I don't know if you heard his um his podcast today with Brad Marshall. I have not heard this one. But uh, yeah, they're basically going over, uh, you know, kind of hammering home the concept that stearic acid is uh, is probably the key, or or at least a mix of uh, stearic acid and palmitic acid, and we should be ruthlessly eliminating linoleic acid. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of an interesting thought, and it was more of a paradigm shift for me because as I was going through this experiment, I was still supplementing with uh, with fish oil gotcha. and uh, and eggs. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know quite how I feel about that. I actually brought it up because I wanted to hear your opinion. So I, it's interesting because I honestly have not paid too much attention to. I mean, I've tried to avoid the the heavily processed polyunsaturated fats like soybean oil, vegetable, oil, you know, things of that nature. But I mm-hmm. haven't done just a whole lot of experimentation on the other types of fats like the the stearic acid, the linoleic acid. And just really made that a point of focus. But when you when you peel the layers back and actually look at what's happening and the appeal to it, I, I can definitely see. I mean, I I try and have a diet rich in mostly the saturated fats with some quality monounsaturated fats. And obviously, I had a keto brick every single day. And keto brick is, I mean, cacao butter is the primo source for stearic acid, much more so than even mm-hmm. the suets out there. Uh, so I definitely feel, I mean, I've had pretty good luck with the brick as far as being able to get shredded with it goes. So I feel like it makes a lot of sense. I'm actually getting Brad on the podcast um, at some point in the near future. Here. I, I reached out to him, and I'm excited to deep dive with him on that. But I, I'm I'm really intrigued by all this because it's, it's a, a direction that most people haven't even been focusing on. Yeah, I guess focusing on the adipocyte and creating insulin resistance at that site there. Um, you know, insulin resistance is usually associated with metabolic dysfunction, but kind of relabeling it and uh, getting a better understanding at the cellular level, I think, is adding a lot of benefit to um, to the low-carb, high-fat community, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. I don't want the the hype of, you know, pointing the finger at linoleic acid to distract completely the, the negative side effects of carbohydrates, because I feel like that could happen depending on which direction the community takes it as a whole. And I don't want that necessarily to happen because I feel like there's a lot of benefit that comes from distracting carbs out of the diets from like a psychological standpoint and how that plays into things. Because so much of what we're talking about, I mean, you can look at it from a physiological standpoint or a psychological standpoint, but since humans are much more complex than black and white, you kind of have to take both into consideration. And I feel like the linoleic acid is not going to have near the psychoactive effects, so to speak, of the carbohydrates on the brain and people's cravings. Absolutely. I do think um, that you're talking from a position of, um, well, let me me rephrase. Um, So someone like my brother, for example, he has had no uh, issue with his relationship with food, Mm -hmm. um, nor has my mom, nor has my dad. Uh, I seem to be kind of unique, uh, in that respect, maybe perhaps um, because I tried cutting down and then getting lean, and that might have been the catalyst. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of carbohydrates for them, they have a very unique or, uh, I guess, ability that I envy to be able to just turn it off. Mm-hmm. They can you know, have that one cookie, and then that's it. <laughs> uh, personally, I'm not that way, and that's why I found you know the ketogenic diet to be so much of a savior uh, psychologically, as you mentioned. So yes, I, I do. I do agree that uh, you know carbohydrates do need to be consumed mindfully. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but definitely not villainized. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I've never wanted to villainize carbohydrates. I, I personally operate much better in the elimination versus moderation type of protocol. And I'm, I'm at a point now in my life where I could totally have carbohydrates and I'm not going to have near the addictive response that I once did. Now, I choose not to have them because I don't feel like they're really offering any inherent benefits. Um, I feel like the... Well, let's make this two-part statement here. So I totally agree with you in what you said. I feel like my most of my family is not like me in that regard as well. Like my dad can eat carbs and he does eat carbs and he stays very lean effortlessly and he doesn't think about food in an addictive state at whatsoever. Um, but I do think from a performance standpoint and from like an optimization standpoint, the carbs really, like if you allow yourself to fully adapt, I'm not convinced that there's any inherent benefit to the carbs. I mean, if you, I don't think that this dual fuel philosophy of you're able to 100% tap into one or the other and, and partition between the two is actually accurate. I feel like, you know, 100% is 100%. You can't have 100% of two different things. Like you're going to have 50% of one and 50% of the other, but you can't have 100% of both because that just isn't the way the <laughs> the, the body works. Um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I look at it the same way. I think about it as if a runner was trying to be the best sprinter in the world or the best marathoner in the world, you know, you can't be both. Yeah. You need to pick one, pick your lane and go for it. Um, funnily enough, uh, that kind of fits well into the, the carb fat analogy. Um, slow burning, fast burning. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, no, I, I would definitely agree with you there. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the only benefit I really had from, from implementing carbs in my training uh, was at best ergogenic. Um, and at worst, if I, if I ate, ate too many or ate too it would throw me off. In terms of performance and optimization, um, that is definitely my main focus as well, as well as uh, you know metabolic flexibility being a, a pretty hot topic right now. People are pressured into uh, you know kind of speaking to the benefits of both, but I do think that if you are thriving on high fat, there should be no need or should be no impetus for you to reintroduce carbs. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think there's there is definitely a, a threshold, so to speak, in which you know if you are not like for instance, someone that's that's been doing keto for six months, uh, even strict keto for six months, and and if they want to introduce some carbs, for instance, to see how that Im- impacts them, then I feel like using me as an example, they would perform. They they could probably see an inherent benefit from those carbs because you know six months is not that long in the grand scheme of things. If they've eaten carbs their entire life prior to that point stay straight keto for six months are really starting to get into the benefits of keto but then have some carbs they're probably going to experience a um, you know benefit in performance they may see a surge in energy uh, energy a, a boost in their ability to get a pump they may see some inherent benefits however i feel like me having been strict keto for six years like any any benefit that I would have gotten from the carbs, my body's been able to adapt and and use fat as the primary fuel source. That is what it knows, and that outweighs the benefit I would have gotten from the carbs. The thing is, most people are probably not going to want to be strict keto for six years unless they have that, you know, unless they want to. Um, if they're constantly going back and forth in their mind of, am I missing out? Am I, am I doing this? Am I doing that? Then they're probably not going to be able to flip that switch and commit to anything for that long. And that's okay. But knowing that at the onset and kind of knowing what the expectation is, I feel like is key. Absolutely. It's kind of weighing what is sustainable versus what is optimal. 
I would agree that if you want to be optimal, then yeah, stick to one fuel source. Um, especially if that is, uh, as you said, you know, you're well adapted for over six years. It wouldn't make sense for you to switch back to carbs, and and to me that makes sense. Um, I've been adapted for a lot less than you, uh, less than a third of the time. Um, so I do still think I get some of the benefits from carbs, but if I were longer adapted, I'm sure that I would have no reason to incorporate any carbohydrates. Yeah, and it's funny, man, because it's like, it's like, what do you, you know, where where do you want to plant your flag in the ground and say this is who I am, or should you even feel compelled to do that in the first place? Like, should we constantly be, you know, malleable and inflexible and able to to adjust, or should we, you know, kind of identify with one thing or another and when you really start diving into human psychology this is where it gets really deep and interesting is you find that humans want to identify they want to be able to say look this is who i am this is what i stand for and unfortunately there's a lot of people not doing that but those people often garner much less respect than those that do and it's it's weird that you know what we eat could be seen as our identity but that's just I mean, if we're in the keto space and that's our profession, that's what our identity would be. So for me, I am proud to say, look, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. Now, I'm not saying this is what you have to do, but I like being the guy that, hey, I've been straight keto for six years and I'm okay with that. I'm proud of that. That's who I am. And I, I want to be able to showcase that to people that think they may want to do that and go that route, that there's other people that have done it and kind of paved the way so it definitely can be done. There's nothing that you're sacrificing long term if you want to do that. And I feel like when you really start diving into the psychology of all these different nuances with regard to diet, that's when it really starts getting much, much more blurry, but also very interesting. Yeah, I found that, and I, I know you found this as well, that um, it's all becoming a little bit too politicized. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of tribalism. And as you said, there's nothing wrong with identifying yourself with a type of diet. I think that's great. But what you do well um, is you don't compel others to you know feel the same way. Otherwise, uh, I would have felt pressure to say that I've been strict keto for three years when in reality I haven't. And I have been experimenting with carbs and I have been testing and, and iterating and seeing what works. And that's to my benefit. Um, you know, should I have been pressured to say strict keto, I probably wouldn't have had the same insights that I would have, you know, doing all these macro manipulations and even including some sort of carbohydrate, seeing how that pertains to performance and you know the other factors in my life. Yeah, and that's totally cool, man. Like I had a podcast with DJ Webb that went live earlier this week, and we just, I mean, he, he was keto for a while. He was in the keto space. Like that's kind of what his identity was to a certain extent, and then he's been eating carbs. And like I don't care. <laughs> like I don't know why people think that I would care. Um, I mean, he's a good friend of mine and will continue to be a good friend of mine regardless of the kind of food he puts in his mouth. So it's weird that people put such an emphasis on that from like this territorial, tribal you know, judgment standpoint. Um, I totally agree with you in that if you have curiosity with things, you should figure out, it, it's weird because there's like this fine line between, you know, having curiosity and wanting to experiment to test those theories, test that curiosity versus having discipline and doubling down. Like to an extent, they somewhat compete for one another. It's, it's all hinged on your perspective towards how you view one or the other it doesn't have to be one's positive one negative it's just like what is your perspective and where are you at in life with regard to your stance on those and that is an area that i feel like a lot of people are just 
they, they don't know where they're at because they don't have the self-awareness in who they identify as. And I think once you have that, it makes this whole discussion of what diet do you follow much more obsolete. Absolutely. And I think at this point, I've started to kind of understand um, when to use each tool. Uh, in specifically, as far as um, I found that now I actually enjoy cutting a little bit more on a higher carb diet and I enjoy bulking on a on a ketogenic approach. <laughs> that's funny because that's the exact opposite of what mainstream does with those two diets. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, not to go totally against mainstream, when my calories do get quite low, um, I do cycle in fat because I, you know, obviously longevity and health is one of my uh, main pillars. And going a high carb approach when calories are quite low, it's very difficult to get any you know, of the essential macronutrients. Mm-hmm. So I do cycle that in. But psychologically, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, when my calories are going up, I like to see that everything is controlled, that all my variables are accounted for. Mm-hmm. And that you know nothing is being confounded by water or uh, extra glycogen or just anything outside of my control there. Yeah, that that's so important, man. Like if if you, I don't know, like it, people are not near as in tune with their body as they would like to think that they are, and like everybody wants to assume that they know how certain things make them feel, but if you really peel back the layers and were to graph everything out and chart everything and document everything, most people don't have a clue how certain things truly impact them. So the beauty of a prep and, and getting, you know, just unnaturally lean is that in that unnatural leanness, you're able to have this unnatural pulse on how everything impacts you, which is so cool. It, it, takes a lot of work to get there. I mean, it's not natural to be walking around at sub 5% body fat, but when you are, your ability to to gauge how every little detail, every little manipulation, every little tweak has an impact on your body and your mind is just that's powerful insight that you can then take and use going forward once you reach a more sustainable body fat because it's not like those factors no longer, you know, come into play. It's just that you can't really tell them as acutely. Yeah, that's that's a concept I like to talk a lot about too in terms of signal to noise. So when you are at a more sustainable body fat, the noise is a little bit higher, right? So you can't necessarily ascertain those signals as clearly. But when you are leaner, and I haven't been as lean as you, but um, I've gotten down to a point where I definitely wasn't comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that signal comes in a lot clearer, right? Uh, in terms of what foods sit well, um, what things I tolerate the best, what things are optimal for me. Um, and I do think that does change, but it's much easier to get a pulse on that, as you said, when you are towards that, that lower level of body fat. Yeah, that, that's why like, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for having legitimate building and cutting phases. Even if your goal is never to step on stage or be a bodybuilder or do a photo shoot, just simply pushing yourself, both body and mind, to that uncomfortable state that allows you to really know who you are both physically and mentally like that is powerful and that is something that unfortunately most of us have lost touch with because i mean when are we you know required to go there in this current day and age i mean we're not really so kind of self you know self-imposing that hardship is almost necessary now but when you when you do it's like it just it opens up a whole nother dimension for what you're capable of that you never even knew existed yeah no absolutely you're putting yourself it's all self-imposed as you said 
right? And sometimes when you're really deep in that struggle, there's that cognitive dissonance of, okay, do I do I keep going or, or do I not? Like, what what's really the point? Which is why, as you mentioned, you need to have why and you need to have that goal. And there's just so much learning that can happen along that process. Yeah. Um, I mean, personally, for me, cutting is actually a little bit easier psychologically than um, than bulking up. Mm-hmm. Uh, just coming from that background of you know holding a little bit more weight when I was a little bit younger. Totally, um, man. So in, sorry. No, I, I totally agree. I'm 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 in the same boat right now. It's a weird phenomenon. Yeah. So what what's helped me with that? You know, obviously, um, not having those daily fluctuations with carbs, but you know, taking consistent pictures and measurements. Um, in the context of my experiment, actually, um, I found that all my measurements were going up except for my waist. So to me, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. What about strength? That's I mean, I'm assuming all those are going up too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So strength um, for me is kind of the leading indicator of when I should stop a cut. You know, if I start to plateau on strength, uh, maybe I either need to take a deload or you know take some time off the bulk. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everything everything was progressing up. Um, actually, in December, I got up to 142 pounds, so that was seven pounds up from my weight in August. Um, and maintaining that weight at calories of 2,800 a day. 2,800. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good, man. I feel like I feel like the whole concept of reverse dieting and the importance of being in a caloric surplus, not just a caloric maintenance, but an actual caloric surplus, is one of the topics that it just doesn't get near the attention. Like everybody likes to talk about getting shredded. I like to talk about getting shredded. I like to post pictures of me shredded, not pictures of me in an off season. But I feel like the importance of that off season and that period of being in a surplus is you know, more important than the reverse or more important than the cut rather. Yeah, no. And it's, it's hard to get people to understand that because, you know, bulking up and building that foundation and kind of reversing out, that isn't sexy, right? Everyone wants to look shredded. Everyone wants to have the veins popping, but it's equally, if not more important. Yeah. And it's going to make your body much more susceptible uh, to the, the intentions of the cut when you transition into a cut. Like if you if you stay at maintenance, for instance, most people don't even stay at maintenance. Most people are just chronically in a, store, a state of being in a deficit. But even if you just stay at maintenance and you transition to a cut, your body's not going to be near as responsive to that manipulation in a cut as it would be if you had actually had a significant period of time in a surplus. Like it's a yin and yang effect you know, order and chaos, so to speak, as Jordan Peterson talks about. And like the same principles apply to your compositional goals like you need to really have both ends of the spectrum in order to really improve significantly in any one spectrum absolutely you can't be catabolic all the time and expect to put on any appreciable size and that's just gonna weigh on you mentally i think uh more important than anything uh for me i was i was stuck in a deficit from 18 to you know halfway through uh my 19th year and that, that weighed on me quite a bit psychologically. Um, felt restricted. I was in university at the time, so um, you know, going out was always counting my drinks and counting calories before, and it just made things more difficult. Whereas if I decided to take an intentional building phase, I mean, I'd still have to, to track things meticulously if I wanted to do it right, but I would have a little bit more freedom and uh, could focus on the things that really matter. 100%, man. Not totally tangent, but speaking of drinks, what is your take on like alcohol with regard to keto, fat adaptation, body recomp, et cetera, et cetera? 
Sorry, I missed the first part. Was that in terms of uh, keto adaption? Yeah, well, what's your take on alcohol as it relates to you know keto uh, adaptation, ability to improve your composition? Like, What's your whole concept of alcohol? Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting topic. Um, when I was adapting myself, I wanted to remove as many variables as possible. So alcohol was one that didn't find its way into the picture. Mm -hmm. um, only later on did I start incorporating it as... Um, you know, either vodka with a carbonated water mix or, or a tequila, something clean, um, nothing with carbs in it really. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's optimal at all. Uh, and I think you should be able to, to go out and have a good time without it. That said, uh, when I am coaching clients, that's a very difficult sell. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of uh, incorporating it into a ketogenic diet, I do actually track them as carbohydrate macros. So that accomplishes two things. One, it inherently limits the amount of alcohol that they do drink, which I think obviously is optimal for, for health. Um, as well, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, a confusion, I guess, in literature. I mean, it takes preferential uh, metabolism over carbs and fats. Um, I don't necessarily know what happens then when the body switches back. So I try to stay away from it wherever I can. Yeah, that's that's a good way to, to do it, man. I feel like, you know, there's there's clearly no inherent benefit to performance with alcohol. I feel like if you're trying to really optimize for that, then it's there's no place for it. I don't ever drink when I'm in a cut. I, I don't think, I mean, if you have to have alcohol in order to function, there's other underlying issues. If you have to drink in order to enjoy the company with your friends and family, then that's an issue. Um, occasionally, like in a in a maintenance or in a surplus, like now in a building phase, you know, I'm a little bit forgiving of weighing an extra pound or two. So I'm not too concerned about having a drink on a special occasion. And I feel like that's a good way to have it, especially if it's a cleaner drink. I mean, there's no such thing as clean alcohol, but there's cleaner mm -hmm. options, which I would, you know, put in the category of like a, a dry red wine, especially one that's like dry farm wines in which they individually batch test to make sure there's no residual sugar or maybe like a hard drink with some kind of, you know, flavored water or something like you said, uh, like a Zevia, you know, Zevia Coke with like a whiskey or something. I think that's totally fine in moderation. But I think as long as you're staying away from the stuff that's just overloaded with sugar and alcohol, you're probably safe. Yeah, 100 percent. There is no real great option. Um, but, you know, some are better than others. It's basically about, uh, I guess, choosing the lesser evil. Yeah, and I feel like like certain, like beer, for instance, I never really was big into beer anyways, but I feel like if you have a, because like some, these beer companies, man, they're getting, they're getting smart, they're getting tricky because they know people are counting carbs or at least being more conscious of the carbs. So they'll put on the, li the label, you know, only two grams of net carbs or whatever it is they put. And people just assume that that's super keto, but they don't take into account alcohol at all i mean that they they don't understand that that is also metabolized and there's a calorie load there outside of just the carb count mm -hmm. yeah no marketing is getting a lot more uh, a lot more sneaky these days yeah yeah i definitely see that and, and a lot of clients bring that to my attention too um you know where they'll pull up like a, a Michelob ultra or a Sleeman and be like look it's fine it's only two grams of carbs be like okay well did you know that alcohol is seven calories per gram as well and then that kind of flips the script and changes the story for them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. What about exogenous ketones? Do you ever supplement with like the esters or the salts or have any kind of experimentation with that? 
Uh, I haven't. Um, I would be very curious to try. The farthest I've gone is, um, you know, just excessive amounts of, of MCT oil. Um, that could be dangerous. Yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> There's can. a threshold to that one too. Yeah, and you'll know really quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the, no, but in terms of exogenous ketones or ketone salts, or ketone esters, um, no, no, I haven't had the chance to experiment with those. I'd be, uh, be curious to hear your experience. Yeah, it, it's interesting, man. Like, I don't... Like, one one of the theories that I feel makes a lot of sense as far as ex- exogenous ketones go is, like, if, you're, if your body is in a deficit and your primary goal is to, you know, metabolize stored body fat, adipose tissue, and produce ketones endogenously, it's probably not the best thing to have a massive exogenous source coming in because, like, for instance, if your brain is, is requiring ketones for energy and fuel and it's being supplied adequate fuel via the exogenous ketones in your body, in my mind at least, would, would be less enthused about, you know, chipping away at stored fat, metabolizing that fat for endogenous ketones. Like that to me just makes inherent sense. Whether or not that's like solidified yet is, is up for debate, but that, that makes sense to me. So I don't ever recommend doing them in a cutting period. However, in a maintenance or surplus, I feel like having some additional exogenous ketones coming in could be advantageous. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you in terms of that uh, might be disrupting that, that feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Um, although admittedly, I have been very curious about trying it on, for example, a race day. Uh, ben Greenfield before has noted that, you know, you can mix uh, a high glucose load with exogenous ketones and it feels like you're on rocket fuel. I would be lying if I didn't say I was uh, curious about trying that myself, but that's definitely an unnatural state for the body to be in. So I'd be curious to see what the, uh, the long-term effects of that are. Yeah, the esters are a lot more compelling to me than the salts. I feel like the salt, I mean, the, the benefit of the salts is that since they're paired and bound to a, you know, sodium, potassium mineral, that you're, you're going to get a lot of electrolyte benefits, which is, I feel like a lot of people are experiencing the benefits from getting their electrolytes dialed up and then they're confusing that benefit with the exogenous ketones. Um, whereas with the esters, there's no, I mean, you're not getting near the electrolyte load and it's a much more higher dose potent sense of the elect- or of the, the ketones coming in. So I noticed like a more profound feeling, you know, from those ketones in an ester form than the salt form. But I don't, I mean, they're, they're kind of expensive, man. I mean, there's, there's becoming more cost-effective options. Ketone aids got some cost-effective options, but if I was to, it would be expensive for me to just use one of those every single day, and I don't know if that would be the best thing for my wallet. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, it was interesting what you said though about um, people confounding the results of the ketones with, uh, you know, just getting adequate electrolyte balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be curious to to see what that would do if I were to in- increase, uh, or sorry, include that in any of my experiments. And because because what I do essentially is I. Um, I visualize the data, and then I regress these subjective variables against the objective uh, metrics, mm-hmm. and then I determine if there's any statistically significant relationship between the two, and see if I could adjust any one variable with any predictability. So slotting that into a to a correlation table and systematically removing variables that added noise, I think would be that would be uh, that'd be quite interesting. I'd, I'd be very interested to see the effects of that. You know. I consider myself a data geek by every sense of the word, but then I've talked to you on this podcast, and I feel like you've totally outdone me, bro. I don't think so. No, I saw your <laughs> um, I saw your spreadsheet from uh, from the Deeper State Keto, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, I was quite impressed. Looks very good. 
Well, I'll have to. You have to send this massive spreadsheet you're talking about because I, I like the idea of slotting it out and having everything measured objectively and subjectively. Because I feel like there's just so much overlap with most experiments, whereas with this, it's like it's controlling for as many variables as possible. And I feel like if you really wanted to distill any experiment down, any manipulation down to its core, that's what you really need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I thought the same, and. It just so happened that it coincided with exactly, you know, the type of uh, data work that I was studying in school. So uh, I was kind of learning it as I went. So everything kind of worked out. What What was your major? I majored in um, business administration. Business administration. That's what yeah. I majored in too, but we didn't do any of this stuff with, with regard to the classes I took. Yeah, we had this ca- class called um, Data Decision Making with Analytics. And that kind of deep uh, dive deep right into it. Very nice, very nice. Yeah. Well, what what's what's next for you, man? What's what's the next experiment on the horizon, or what are you working on now? So, I mean, I've been working um, for the past couple months on you know training for that race. Um, unfortunately, with that now canceled, I've I've taken a little bit of a different approach. Now I'm transitioning into sort of a lean bulking phase. Uh, so you know, switching into a push pull split, push pull leg split, and uh, upping the calories a bit. And I'm also trying to take on as many clients as possible. So I'm really trying to ramp up the, the coaching side of my business and uh, trying to help people optimize their performance and health. I love it, man. I love it. With your push-pull legs, do you are you just doing three training days a week or are you repeating it twice throughout the course of a week? So I'm starting out with, uh, with my volume a little bit lower. So right now I'm only doing uh, the three-day a week and then throwing in an accessory day, mobility, or... Uh, actually, one of my recent goals now is to increase my vertical, so I might do some uh, plyometrics on that day off. Um, but I do intend to increase that to a four-day split, then a five-day, and then eventually, yeah, repeating it twice with one rest day. Nice, nice. So you feel like you're getting adequate recovery with like the push-pull legs doing muscle groups that are not really competing for one another? Sorry, you cut it towards the end a little bit. So you feel like you're getting pretty adequate recovery, you know, with the push pull leg split and not having competitive muscles, you know, sledge one one after the other. Yeah, the only complaint I would have is that um, my tricep seems to wear a little bit towards the end of the end of the push day. Mm-hmm. So I typically need a little bit more recovery, um, you know, from those days. But since there is such a long period between, you know, my my second push day, it does seem to work out. But I do think I'm sacrificing some potential shoulder or chest gains just because they're fatiguing first. Yeah, that make that makes sense. Whenever I've tried to do like three or more muscle groups in a in a day, I feel like I feel like it's just too taxing for me. So I've I've pretty much done all of my training in the in a way that each muscle or just only getting two muscles worked in a given training session. I feel like that's worked pretty well. I'll throw in something totally unrelated like calves or abs or something. But mostly I stick the two two training days and I've really been kind of playing with the frequency of the different lifts and I feel like increasing the frequency and making sure there's adequate time in between hitting that same muscle is key um, and finding that balance is, is and that's going to be very different for everybody but I used to do like the standard bro split of each day gets one single muscle and then I just do that single muscle once a week and that just wasn't wasn't enough after I'd been training for several years after like when I first started training I was able to get positive response from that but as you get more and more muscle maturity you have to kind of you know mix things up and stimulate a little bit more frequently yeah absolutely um for me it was kind of like a novel change just coming from a lot of body weight work and endurance training so i'm Mm -hmm. responding quite well in these first three weeks um but 
you know, it's it's interesting to see what will happen once I hit a plateau and how I can uh, mix things up and keep progressing from there. That's the name of the game, man. Changing it up and seeing what your body responds to and noticing that it's never never a static thing. It's always changing and you got to always adapt with it. Absolutely. Well, where can people go to find out about you, man? Follow along and, and see the journey. Yeah, so I have an Instagram account. Um, it's at Kieran Malik Fitness. And I also have a Twitter account that's at Malik Fitness. Awesome, awesome. I will link out to those. And keep in touch, man. I, w- I want to keep learning about all these experiments. Like like I said, you've got you've got the handle down on all these different manipulations. So I'm excited to see what you learn in all the all the processes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd love to see I'd love to keep in touch. Uh, thank you for having me on. This has been a pleasure. Absolutely, man. Take care and have a good one. 